Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. Many months ago, as we started this series that has gone on now for a number of years, as we've been slowly making our way through the Gospel of Mark, I told you that I love this Gospel. And as I've studied it and as I've had the privilege of preaching from the Gospel of Mark, I've only grown to love it more. And as we... Uh, One of the reasons that I've grown to love it more is the nuance that I've seen in it. And one of those things I I think I've talked about a lot, and that is the animosity that is building between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of that day. And we see that especially here in this middle section. We've we've called this Act 2 of the the play or the... the, um, uh, relation of, of, of Christ's life, um, and we're kind of in that section between his teaching and his crucifixion. He continues, though, of course, to teach his disciples, um, and we see his interactions with the Jewish leaders, and we see that once again in our text that is before us. Remember that we've said from the beginning that this concept of Christ's authority has been a theme that Mark has been weaving throughout this gospel. And now we see that his authority, Christ's authority, clashing with the power structure that's currently in place in first century Israel. And it's as though there's this background music that is just kind of slowly building to a crescendo. And the drumbeat of this is, is growing louder. And we're seeing and feeling, hopefully, as we go along, the intensity increasing of the conflict between Jesus and these leaders in Israel. Previously, we've felt this growing animosity as Jesus cleansed the temple. That was a few Sundays back. He, in doing that, he showed that he was truly the Lord of the temple. Then the next account was him cursing the fig tree. And in that was he enacted parable against Israel and her leaders for their spiritual barrenness. In the last sermon that we looked at from the Gospel of Mark, these leaders came to Jesus directly and questioned his authority and and demanded of him, by what authority did you do these things? Likely primarily speaking about his cleansing of the temple. And, in, and we know, of course, from that account that Jesus refused to answer and instead posed a question to them, asking them about the baptism of John. Was it from heaven or was it from men? And they, of course, refused to answer Jesus' question, knowing that saying it was from heaven would put them at a place where they must obey John's message. It made them responsible if they recognized that John's message was from heaven. Yet to say that John's baptism was only from men would put them at odds with the people because many of the people believed John to be the prophet that he really and truly was. If John's message was from heaven, then these Jewish leaders were not only rejecting God's call to repentance upon them, upon the people, but they were also directly opposing the Lord's Messiah. And so today we come to the second of actually six episodes, six controversial interactions between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. 
And here Jesus tells a parable that strikes at the heart of these leaders' failure. Their failure to accept the message of Scripture and how it points to the coming of Christ as the Messiah. So we want to read the first 12 verses of chapter 12 of the Gospel of Mark. But before we do, let us pray and ask God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we bow before you, recognizing our own inability to to approach you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have come to us. Lord God, that you condescended to us by means of a covenant. And Lord, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to us and are the messenger of God for us, prophet, priest, and king. We pray that as we reflect upon your word, Lord God, that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your word. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord, would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying... They will respect my son. But these tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against him. So they left him and went away. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word this evening. I would like us to see this text under three headings. The first, the parable, in which we'll just look at the contents of this parable that Jesus told. Secondly, the psalm in which we'll consider this text, this quote that Jesus brings in from the Old Testament, from Psalm 118. And finally, the plot in which we seek to peer into the hearts in just a little way, in just a small measure, the hearts of the Jewish leaders in their plot against Jesus. First of all, the parable. You may recall that a parable in the Gospel of Mark is... is Uh, rarer than what we find in the other synoptic gospels of Matthew and Luke. In Matthew, you hear Jesus saying things like, the kingdom of heaven is like unto this. And he would give some, um, some way of teaching the people to help them understand what the kingdom of heaven was like. In Mark, Jesus does tell several parables, but overall the narrative emphasizes the actions, the things that Jesus did. So what is a parable? 
we need to pay careful attention to this because it is God's word and it is a way Jesus teaches about his kingdom. The word parable means to throw alongside, an interesting phrase, but it is, it, it, it tells a story as an extended analogy that demonstrates a certain truth about Christ and his kingdom. A common definition of a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, which is not wrong, but perhaps needs to be nuanced a little more. For Jesus told his disciples in the fourth chapter of Mark, in concerning the parable of the sower, that parables were intended, they have an intention and a purpose. They're intended to reveal the kingdom, to help us understand the kingdom. That is for those inside the kingdom. As we heard in the message this morning, there's two kinds of people, those on the inside and those on the outside. And we've seen that developed here in the Gospel of Mark. And for those on the outside, parables are actually to conceal the truth and it ends up hardening the hearts of unbelievers. As they encounter the truth of the kingdom of God and they reject it, their hearts are hardened. And in our text today, these religious leaders in the, in the final verses will see that they understand what this parable is about, but yet it very much has the effect of hardening them. Now this parable may seem foreign to us, I don't think any of us are are probably vine dressers in here this evening. I know I certainly am not. But for the original audience of, of Christ as he relates this parable, they would have been very familiar with the concepts here. Commentators point out that under the rule of Herod in first century Palestine, that many of the small vineyards and the small farms were taken up by wealthy landowners that, that didn't necessarily farm the ground, but they would, they would lease it out to tenants. And so this story that Jesus is telling about these individuals is, is not foreign to them. Um, I think of it in a way of, of perhaps like a number of years ago, people bemoaned, the and, and I too, uh, bemoaned the, the fact that many small family farms were having to be sold and, and wealthy landowners, sometimes foreigners, would come in and, and would buy up large tracts of land. In a way, it seems like this is happening here and this is what Jesus is describing. But in this parable, the owner has gone to substantial expense to establish this vineyard. It said he put up a fence, he dug a wine press and a tower, and then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. At the appointed time, as we've seen in the text, he sends some of his servants to receive the, the portion that is due him. But instead of them returning with a portion of the harvest, they are treated disrespectfully. They were beaten and treated shamefully. Some they beat and some they killed. And it was as though these tenants, who were hired to be stewards of the vineyard, for the owner, were treating the vineyard as it were their own. They were treating the servants of the landlord, of the owner, as though they were the invaders, while they were really just servants of the owner that had come to receive what was his due. And it seems as they, the landlord then sends his son thinking surely they will listen to and they will respect 
my son, then it seems like they have a last-ditch attempt to, to take the ownership, that they are already treating it as though it is their own. They see the son as the final hurdles across to gain ownership of what they were already treating as their own. And then in a final act of defiant rebellion against the owner, they kill the son. They kill the heir, thumbing their noses at the owner's authority and ownership. Now, we may wonder what the interpretation of this. In the context, it's, it's not too hard for us to see. And we perhaps wonder, how did they receive it? How did the original audience receive it? Did they know what Jesus was talking about when he talked about a vineyard? Well, actually, they did. And there was, there was old, significant Old Testament scriptures in Isaiah 5, particularly, where Jesus talks about Israel as a vineyard. Previously, we had talked about how Jesus, how the Old Testament speaks of Israel as a fig tree. Also, the Old Testament speaks about Israel as a vineyard. And we see that particularly in Isaiah chapter 5. And so it's very likely that especially in the minds of these Jewish leaders that Isaiah 5 would come to mind. Because in that, we see that Jesus, or God said, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Very plain language. It's also demonstrated in, in other prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea. And even the language that Jesus used to introduced this parable about how the, the owner had set it up was, was in the, the same style as it was portrayed in Isaiah 5. So they should have seen, and I think they did see, that they were the tenants. The Jewish leaders were the tenants. And they should have known that the servants sent from the owner were the prophets, many of whom they killed when Jesus rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 3, he said, On you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. The blood of the prophets, really, from A to Z, it seems like it's saying, is on the hands of the religious leaders of that day. We see that the owner, of course, is God. God is the Lord of his people, of his people Israel, of the vineyard. He is the owner of the vineyard, and he sends his beloved son. Isn't it interesting that Jesus used that word, beloved son, and for those that heard, were there present when Jesus was um, baptized, when the voice came from heaven, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Similar language at the crucifixion when Peter, or I mean, I'm sorry, at the, uh, on the, the Mount of Transfiguration when James and Peter, James and John were with Jesus and heard the voice in similar language. And then Jesus asks them pointedly, what will the owner do? Verse 9 tells us that he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And it almost seems like Jesus is, is just stirring the pot simply to agitate these men. But, but we know it's much more because after giving them this parable, Jesus, in, in giving them this parable, is teaching them about himself. 
And then he gives them this quote from the Psalms. He says, have you never read the scripture? Well, that was somewhat of a rhetorical question. When you ask the the chief priests and scribes, have you read the scripture? Have you read the Psalms? Yes, he knew they had. What he was really saying is, have you really read it? Have you really understood what this psalm is about? Where he quotes this psalm from 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. There are several interesting features about this psalm. This psalm is what is known as a halal psalm. And it was from Psalm 113 to 118 that were instrumental in the, the liturgy of the Passover. And it's not coincidental that just a few verses previous to this, we see another quote from Psalm 8, 118. When Jesus is entering Jerusalem upon what we call Palm Sunday, there was another quote from this same psalm. So the context is is that this was a psalm that was quoted for Passover. And we know that they are just a a day or two away from celebrating Passover there in Jerusalem. Jesus quotes from this psalm about a stone that was rejected. And now, not only is it useful, but it has become the cornerstone, the chief stone of the building. Imagine... Stonemasons in ancient days, building the temple of Solomon, looking for the right stone to build that beautiful edifice. And they find a stone that's misshapen and, and is not appropriate for their building, and they, they set it aside. And perhaps it sits in the corner of the construction lot for weeks or for months. And then they continue in that building and then they get to a time and they're, wait, they're looking for just the right stone. And they say, wait a minute, what about that stone that we discarded? Bring that over here. And it fits perfectly. And it's the key stone, the chief stone to hold it all together. Now, we don't know for sure if that is really what is behind this. Some commentators think that there may have been a story such as like that behind this psalm. But Jesus is saying, this is about me. This is about the fact that I am that chief cornerstone that the builders rejected. And there's another allusion here that was also not wasted upon the scribes and the leaders that day. In rabbinic literature, the leaders, the religious leaders were often called builders. And they were the ones that had rejected the stone So there's an accusation in this quote as well, as these builders, these ones who were responsible for the spiritual house of Israel, were rejecting the stone that was the chief stone in the building of God's kingdom. Jesus reminds them that this was being accomplished in the coming of his spiritual kingdom, that it was the Lord's doing, and that it was marvelous in the eyes of those that behold it. And again, this helps us Remember some of that language that Mark likes to use, how the people were continually amazed at the works of Jesus and at the authority that he demonstrated. Christ is that chief stone in the temple. And Mark is helping his readers see that Jesus and his followers are the new covenant, are are the temple of the new covenant. 
We've looked at the parables. We've looked at this quotation from the Psalms. And let us briefly look at the plot against Jesus. Considering what we, they have just seen and heard, these chief priests and scribes and rulers, these three major divisions of the Sanhedrin is really who these men were. Would they recognize Jesus as the rock, the Lord of the temple, as the beloved son of the vineyard owner, son of God himself? No, they do not. They refuse to. They, they continue in their unbelief. We see it in their hearts. We see it in the fact that they cling to the power that they have, they think they have, the, the power among men. They were defiant in the face of the challenge facing true authority. We see it in their fears. They feared losing power. They feared losing control. They feared the people. We see it as well in their understanding for verse 12 tells us that they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They knew it. The crowds knew it, I think, as well. And these religious leaders knew that Jesus was talking about them. Even though in veiled terms, he was talking about them. Their eyes were blinded to the sense, in the sense that they did not understand Yet their eyes were willfully blinded to the truth by their own pride and self-will. And they were hardened by it. As we said, the parables have a hardening sense upon those who reject the truth. Often, I heard, I, I listened to a sermon on this text this week. And, and this preacher pointed out that often it is not for a lack of understanding about who Jesus is that people reject him. It is often precisely because they understand who Jesus is and what his truth claims are that they choose to reject him. They stumble over him because they do understand him. Interestingly, the apostle Peter in his epistle quotes from Psalm 118 as well in chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourself like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He picks up on this same idea. And no doubt the event in Mark is is strong in Peter's mind as he is writing these words to the church. And he goes on, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, Peter says. And for those outside, the truth claims of Christ are that stone of stumbling. People stumble over Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They stumble over the fact that Jesus says, no man comes to the Father but by me. They stumble over 
the exclusivity of Christ's claims. I trust as we have been going through this passage and previous passages, you not only have seen the nuance of the text and recognized the building tension within the text and within the story. I trust there's also a building tension within your own heart, especially if you are outside of Christ tonight, especially if you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, that Christ has a claim upon you, and you will never be at peace until you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, until you submit to that chief cornerstone. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus challenges our authority. He challenges the authority of these first century leaders in Israel. And we, as I've said before, we can look down our noses at them and think, Oh, I'm glad I'm not them. But you know what? We can set up kingdoms in our own heart. We can set up King Me upon the throne. But Jesus' authority challenges even King Me, and especially King Me, upon the throne of our hearts. In closing, just as a postscript to this, when we listen to this parable, we might think, why would the owner send his son? He had sent servants, he had sent prophets. They killed them. They mistreated them. Why on earth would this man send his beloved son? Well, I think you know the answer to that. It's because of his amazing grace. And it's because that son is our savior. As we've already sung, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let us pray.